The gospel reading for this morning comes from Matthew's gospel, once again in the fifth chapter, beginning at the 21st verse. We're still in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, so Matthew wrote, Jesus speaking. You're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly call a brother idiot and you just might find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister and you're on the brink of hellfire. The simple moral fact is that words kill. This is how I want you to conduct yourself in these matters. If you enter your place of worship and about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you. Abandon your offering. Leave immediately. Go to this friend and make things right. Then and only then, come back and work things out with God. Or say you're out on the street and an old enemy accosts you. Don't lose a minute. Make the first move. Make things right with him. After all, if you leave the first move to him, knowing his track record, you're likely to end up in court, maybe even jail. If that happens, you won't get out without a stiff fine. You know the next commandment pretty well, too. Don't go to bed with another spouse. But don't think you've preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those leering looks you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. Let's not pretend this is easier than it really is. If you want to live a morally pure life, here's what you have to do. You have to blind your right eye the moment you catch it in a lustful leer. You have to choose to live one-eyed or else be dumped on a moral trash pile. And you have to chop off your right hand the moment you notice it raised threateningly. Better a bloody stump than your entire being discarded for good in the dump. Remember the scripture that says, whoever divorces his wife, let him do it legally, giving her divorce papers and her legal rights? Too many of you are using that as a cover for selfishness and whim, pretending to be righteous just because you are legal. Please, no more pretending. If you divorce your wife, you're responsible for making her an adulteress, unless she has already made herself that by sexual promiscuity. And if you marry such a divorced adulteress, you're automatically an adulterer yourself. You can't use legal cover to mask a moral failure. And don't say anything you don't mean. This counsel is embedded deep in our traditions. You only make things worse when you lay down a smokescreen of pious talk, saying, I'll pray for you and never doing it, or saying, God be with you and not meaning it. You don't make your words true by embellishing them with religious lace. In making your speech sound more religious, it becomes less true. Just say yes and no. When you manipulate words to get your own way, you go wrong. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. <clears throat> Would you pray with me, please? Oh, Lord, you reached out and touched the untouchable. You healed those of broken body and mind. You rebuked evil when you encountered it among us, and you restored the lost to wholeness. 
So empower us, O Lord, to reach out to those among us who are in need, to bind up the brokenhearted, to restore the alienated to faith and fellowship. Teach us to live in love as you lived and loved. Open our hearts and ears and minds to your word for us this day. Amen. Winston Churchill once hailed a London cabbie and told him to hurry to the BBC studios where he was to make a speech to the world. And the cabbie informed him that he was sorry, but he couldn't go that far. And Churchill was surprised and asked the driver why his operations were so limited. He said, well, they're not ordinarily, sir. But you see, sir, Mr. Churchill is to broadcast in an hour, and I want to get to my home in time to hear him. Well, the prime minister was so pleased that he handed the cabbie a pound note. And at that, the driver changed his mind and exclaimed, hop in, sir, to blazes with Churchill. You know how easy or for how little we surrender our convictions at times. And this morning we turn our attention once again to that little Sermon on the Mount, where it seems to me anyway that things are getting amped up a bit. Right off the bat this morning comes the notion that you aren't supposed to be angry with a brother or sister. Now I don't know about you, but I find that kind of difficult. I don't believe that you can will yourself not to be angry. Anger, you know, seems to be a spontaneous emotion that just kind of wells up inside of you. And you can't turn it on and off like a water spigot. Something happens. You respond in the heat of the moment. It just happens. And I don't think that you can will it not to happen any more than you can will a yawn or a sneeze away. But notice, please, I think this is important, that Jesus doesn't say, don't be angry. I think Jesus knows that anger happens. I think he's really saying, hey, recognize your anger and do something about it. And with what's going on in the world today, it seems to me a good place to spend some time this morning. Sooner or later, Something is going to frustrate you. A board of directors is going to make a decision that leaves you fuming. In the course of a Sunday school discussion, someone's going to say something that sends you into a slow boil. And imagine this, Congress or the President will take a position that causes fire to race through your heart and soul. And sometimes, your own ineptitude or insensitivity will make you so mad that you can hardly stand yourself. How can a person like me be so stupid? Anger is one of the most pervasive feelings in our time. I think many people feel powerless, unable to feel that they control their own circumstances, kapow, they boil over with anger. Racial tensions are once again high. Tensions run high between citizens and their police. We talk about building walls to keep others out of here. 
And I don't mean to offend any of you, but the sound of Rush Limbaugh's voice raises my blood pressure about a good hundred points. What about you? What makes you angry? What happens to you when you become angry? What do you do with your anger? Are you angry now? Well, if anger is such a natural part of the human condition, then why is Jesus so concerned about it? Well, I think the answer to the questions in the first part of the passage You're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who's so much as angry with a brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Why is Jesus so concerned about anger? Because in human relationships, anger is the functional equivalent of murder. What, you might say? How can this be? Anger is murder? In this sense, I think. Anger destroys God's intention for relationship. I really believe that God desires for all relationships to be encouraging, supportive, upbuilding, mutual. But anger just kills those qualities. Now you may think it's just too much to equate murder and anger, and I do see your point. Murder has a finality about it that anger just doesn't have. But anger still has the effect of distorting relationships so that God's intentions for them are deeply violated. As I studied this passage, I was really surprised by something. Jesus does not discriminate between types of anger. I sometimes distinguish between righteous anger and other kinds of anger. Now, righteous anger is the kind of anger you feel when you're right and others are clearly wrong. (laughs) Oh, you know what I mean. I feel righteous anger when I think of Congress refusing to lift an embargo on Cuba that continues to allow children to die for lack of penicillin. Many of my conservative friends feel righteous anger toward those who operate Planned Parenthood. But Jesus surprises me here. He makes no distinction between righteous and unrighteous anger. One viewpoint may be faithful and another unfaithful, or more likely, one may be a little more faithful than another. But Jesus does not give license to angry words or behaviors to demonstrate one's righteous position. Jesus looks at anger from the perspective of those who are angry. If you're angry with a brother or sister, i.e. with a comrade in the Christian community, you will be liable to judgment. That is, if you're generally angry toward another person, you will be held accountable. If you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to court. And the Greek here is quite colorful. If you call someone raka, the word raka means empty, dumb, empty-headed. The difference between this case and the preceding one is that it's an actual demonstration of anger towards another person. The consequence becomes greater 
when you act out your anger towards another. And if you say stupid, you'll be liable to hellfire. In the biblical words, stupids acted contrary to the ways of God, idolaters, practicing injustice and exploitation. They live as if there is no God. To call someone stupid is a very serious matter. It is to judge them outside the range of God's love. The consequence? Consigned to the hell of fire. Now in our neighborhood church, a person may not be brought to the council on the accusation of being angry with another person. And I imagine that some of you don't believe in a hell of fire, much less that you would be assigned there for a few angry feelings. But please notice the deeper truth of these ancient ways of thinking. Anger has destructive consequences on those who feel it toward another person or toward themselves. If you are angry at someone, your anger eats away at you. It murders aspects of your ability to function with yourself and with other people. And it murders aspects of your relationship with God. You need to do something about it. When I'm angry at someone else or at some situation, and honestly lately it seems I'm angry a lot, my stomach churns. I'm nearly always thinking about that person or situation. It's like my mind can play two channels at once. One channel focuses on the immediate task at hand, but the other channel is playing different scenarios of the situation of anger. What I said or what I did, what the other person said or did, what could I have done different, what would I like to say or do the next time I bump into that person, I am preoccupied by it. And pretty soon my guts are eaten up and I'm emotionally whipped and I'm of limited use to God, to you, to my family, to myself. So anger's going to come out. We ought not to deny or repress it. If we do in one place, it just comes out somewhere else. We need to name our anger and to deal with it. And please, this day, come to grips with the fact that words kill. Once spoken, they cannot be called back. You can't cram them into your mouth again and wish that they had never seen the light of day. Think twice. Speak once. Mean what you say. And be willing to own it. And don't be afraid. Amen.